0: May all beings be happy, may all beings be healthy, may all beings be free from harm, may all beings love life, may all beings awaken. Welcome to another Q-Audio podcast. I'm D.C. Puba of Cuk Audio and Cuk Archives, helping to preserve the legacy of Shunyu Suzuki and those whose paths cross his. And anything else that comes to mind, I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitations of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. So today we have part two with Joe Cohen. So last week we had Joe uh, talking about, oh, his life and practice and coming to Zen Center and education and, and a lot about his uh, uh, audio business. He's a real true blue audiophile. And today we're getting more into his music history. Um, I will remind you that his business uh, sells very high-end fanatic audio stuff is the Lotus Group USA. It's in Novato, California. Um, And um, so... Well, let's just go into it, you know. Uh, And and he tells a little bit about Zen Center, too. Uh, He tells about an event Suzuki Roshi spoke at, Shunyu Suzuki spoke at, that uh, I guess I heard about it before. 67. Anyway, he talks about it. It It's no big deal. He doesn't remember. I think it was the first time he heard him. And he was at a music event. But, but, uh, you know, all Eastern music in San Francisco and Suzuki came in and gave a talk. That was interesting. Um, Anyway, so let's just go on and give Joe a call and hear what he has to say. So when you uh, hear the bell, if you're of such a mind, uh, hit pause and meditate or whatever for as long as you wish. And when you're ready... When you're mentally prepared (laughs) for the podcast, hit unpause. pause and we'll be there to hit the bell to end the meditation or whatever and to uh, give Joe Cohen a call.
1: Hey, David. Hi, Joe. So here we are again.
2: Yeah, we were just uh, we were just listening to the Doobie Brothers on TV. Awesome. Awesome. Awesome.
1: Oh, wow.
2: Yeah. um, Mark, Mark Russo, the sax player is on Doria's uh, album. Feel the rhythm. Oh, plays the sax on her album. Yeah. Well, she had some really hot people on that album. I mean, she had Abe Laboreal, and Alex Acuna and the Turtle Island String Quartet. <laughs>
0: All right, now tell us who you're talking about.
2: My wife, Daria. She's a jazz and, singer.
0: And and uh, 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 well, just tell me about music. Tell me about your music, her music. How you got into music? Uh, <laughs> uh, I know it goes back to India. I'd really like to hear about that.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, music goes all the way back to, I mean, I remember when I was like uh, probably two or three years old dancing to some uh, Eastern sounding music, maybe some Jewish music or something and just being absolutely ecstatic, you know? Mm. Um, And then, and then we used to have like a Magnavox console, you know, the kind of thing where you stack six records and it would drop them down Right. And I used to listen. I used to listen to uh, Bach uh, Bach, who would give me tingles up and down my spine. you know I'm sure many people had that kind of experience. Mm.
1: Um,
2: and, and then when I was in high school, uh, my friend Danny Conrad had a, a third floor all to himself, his bedroom, so it was like away from parents. And we used to go up there and smoke a little pot and listen to jazz. And one day he put on Ravi Shankar and Alaraka. And it was like, oh, it was like game set match. I just heard that. It was like instant recognition for me. Mm. So I was I just had to pursue it. And um, um I went to um I went to Antioch College and they had this um work study program. So you'd you know, you'd be on campus for oh maybe um you know three months or six months and then you'd go out and do a job somewhere. And I had a job in New York city. Hold on a second. I got to drink some more. I think this was, the uh, yeah, it was my first, my first, uh, job. So it was, must've been like 65. Cause I went, I went to college like in the summer, right after I graduated, like in August, I think I started right away. Um, but I worked for this company in uh, this architectural firm in New York city that, um, that built the Pan Am building anyway. So one day I saw um, an ad in the paper for a sitar concert at the United Nations. And I went and there was a small hall at the United Nations. And this painter named Om Prakash uh, uh, was giving a concert. And afterwards I went up to him and I said, hey, you know, can you teach me? And he said, well, do you have a sitar? I said, no. He said, well, I can probably, you know, one of my students can probably lend you one. Um, I think I ended up buying it and, um, I took lessons from him. Now, one day I I showed up for a lesson and he said, Oh, did we have a lesson today? I said, yeah. He said, Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot. He said, listen, I'm, I'm going up. I think it was stony point. He said, I'm going to go meet John Cage. You want to come? And I said, sure. So we drove up uh, to the college and I guess a professor who lived off campus, um, had John Cage there, so we hung out and played poker, and he didn't say much, but uh, smiled a lot. Anyway, so um, then um, I heard about the uh, American Society for Eastern Arts. Mm. Um, uh, Louise Scripps was you know, one of the heirs to the Scripps Howard newspaper fortune, and she was a student of Bala Saraswati, the great South Indian Dance, uh, um, you know, maybe the greatest dancer of her generation. And her brothers were these absolute superlative South Indian musicians Vishwanathan and Ranganathan. I'm pretty sure they were her brothers. So she came from this fantastic uh, musical family. Uh, Anyway, so she sponsored this group called the American Society for Eastern Arts, and they were going to have, uh, in the summer of 66, I think it was, Ali Akbar Khan and Nikhil Banerjee. So I I wrote to Nikhil Banerjee and I said, I want to come study with you in India. And he said, well, why don't you come meet me in California first? And of course, I I was going to do that. And... The morning I met him, they had put on an event um, that was like, a, I think it was like an all-day concert, and they had South Indian musicians, they had North Indian musicians, Ali Akbar Khan, Nikhil Banerjee, um, and um go, okay, what's his name, Tabla Player, I'll think of it. Um, anyway, uh, shoot, um, they had, uh, I don't know if I said they had Japanese musicians as well, and Suzuki Roshi gave a talk. So the first day that I saw Nikhil Banerjee was the same day that I first saw Suzuki Roshi. I don't know if you were aware of that event or remembered such
0: what, an event. What, when was it?
2: Well, it, it must. It was uh, that was in the summer of '67, I think. mm Hmm. So, um, so I ended up studying.
0: Um, can, can, can you describe? Tell me everything you know about that event so I, I can, you know, maybe find it. I, it does ring a bell. Uh, I wasn't there. I was well, at Tassahara.
2: Oh, you were at Tassahara, maybe at the time?
0: Yeah, definitely.
2: Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it was the summer of 67. I was still in college. Um, but what and, sort of event
0: uh, was it? It was – yeah, if he went there, there was – What was the overall – you're saying it's an all-day? Yeah, it was like
2: an all-day concert um, with all these different musicians from, uh, you know, different parts of the world um, that the American Society for Eastern Arts was sponsoring. And I guess they had – you know, at least this is my memory. You know, maybe it's a long time ago, (laughs) but I distinctly remember seeing Suzuki Roshi give a talk there, um, and it makes kind of sense – Uh, those kind of events, you know, were more all encompassing in free form in those days. Mm -hmm. I think we were, you know, so. um, Wow. And 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 of course, you know, uh, it was uh, Nikhil Banerjee played a morning raga and just brought me to tears. I mean, I'd never heard anything like that. Um, You know, I, I, I don't think there's ever been another sitar player that that could do what he did. Uh, both, you know, in terms of uh, uh, just the sh- the sheer uh, uh, spiritual and emotional connection with the music, coupled with the most amazing pyrotechnics, you know, you could imagine. Mm.
1: Um,
2: so, um, you know, they both had the same teacher, he and Ravi Shankar and Ali Akbar Khan's, it was Ali Akbar Khan's father that was their teacher. So, oh. so that was kind of, that was kind of my um you know, I, I was so, oh, how to say it? You, you know that album by George Harrison called Wonderwall?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I've heard it. It's way back there in the past.
2: So, you know, it, it, the cover uh, is, you see, on one side of a wall, you're like in this drab Liverpool street, you know, it's there's nothing growing. It's just drab bricks and sidewalk or whatever. And on the other side of the wall are all these, you know, these these gopis and, and peacocks and, and musicians. And it's all very colorful and, and, you know, a scene. And I felt like I had left that cold world and come into this wonderful, magical place um, that summer studying. And then when it was over, um, you know, I felt somewhat bereft and wasn't sure how to proceed. I mean, I kept practicing, but I went back to school and the Vietnam War was going on, and you know I think I was pretty uh, traumatized by the the prospect of um of the draft you know as one thing and um just kind of recovering in a sense from my own uh childhood. I had an older brother who was mentally ill, so that that had took a kind of a toll on our family um mm. and and so um when I went to India in uh, later on that year, I arranged for a year abroad in India. Normally when you do a year abroad as a student, they send you to a program like you'll go to Benares and you will learn Hindi and you'll immerse in the culture and you'll have classes. And, and, um, for some reason, Antioch decided to allow me to have a ticket to go to India on my own. So, um, but I ended up in India um, before Nikhil Banerjee uh, came. Uh, he was still touring Europe, so I wasn't sure what to do. And I, I, I was in Calcutta, and I went to the Ali Akbar College there, and I met uh, Annapurna Devi, who was uh, Ravi Shankar's wife, Ali Akbar Khan's sister. Um, and she's she was really after her father died. She was like the guru, you know. Nikhil Nikhil Banerjee said, you know, of of all of Alauddin Khan's students, Anupurna Devi absorbed 100 uh, percent, Ali Akbar Khan 75 percent, Ravi Shankar 25 percent, and he said he absorbed 10 percent or something. I mean, he's being modest, right? Um, uh, But um, I was—I just felt a, a strong connection, a strong pull to study with her and so i ended up going to bombay and and studying with her for a while but i i, I found the circumstance just too physically difficult to sustain i i had, was living with a family in a room in a suburb three train rides away from malabar hill where she lived um you know that's a fancy section of bombay and at the time it, it said ravi shankar on on her on her door she they later divorced and he married someone else and she gave amazing lessons. You know, her lessons were foundational. There, there was, you know, it was, it's hard to describe, but everything that she taught was uh, would lead to, you know, further development. Mm. So, um, so I felt, you know, I, I, I had to leave. I couldn't stay. It was, it was just unsustainable for me psychologically. So uh, I left, Uh, you know, feeling a little bit um, broken uh, that I couldn't sustain it. And I went traveling and um, I met a a young American uh, sadhu type on on the boat from Bombay to Goa. And and he kind of, um, you know, he inspired me. And I, I asked him, you know, what ashrams and gurus, you know, I might go check in with. And um, he gave me some different places. And so I went and spent some time in Goa on the beach. I stayed in the house with a bunch of German hippies who were, they were smuggling hashish into, um, into Europe, into Germany. What they did was they would take these slabs of hashish and they would coat them with many coats of varnish and one of them was a very accomplished painter. So he would paint uh, uh, Russian icons on these slabs of hashish, and they were beautiful. I mean, they looked just absolutely amazing. So I, <clears throat> I guess they, they imported them into Germany as um, uh, pieces of art. And I remember waking up, someone <laughs> nudging me and handing me a chalem, you know. <laughs> I mean, you start the day on the beach in Goa with a with a chalem full of hashish. You're gonna you're gonna go into a whiteout mode anyway. So um, <laughs> that didn't that didn't last too long. And I went traveling, and, and I went down to Kerala and stayed in the game preserve, which was amazing, and, and saw, you know, beautiful game, um, different animals there, and and then oh, took the bus over to um, what, animals, what animals?
0: What animals?
2: I saw, um, well, we saw elephants. Uh, we didn't see any tigers. I remember when we went to stay in the uh, cabin in the middle of this forest, there was a moat dug all the way around it. And the bridge across was log. Well, like uh, you might say like um, maybe 12 by 12s or 10 by 10s that were, uh, you know, flat and then spaced uh, so that you had to kind of walk over the spaces, it wasn't a continuous path, because that was to keep the animals and the elephants from going over. Um, it was amazing uh, being in that room hmm. with the bars on the windows and the windows open and hearing the jungle sounds at night it was just amazing. Um, and then one night, we, uh, I was with a Swiss couple that I'd met and we went up and stayed in a, an observation tower overnight. And we looked out and looked out and looked out and saw nothing. There was like a, a, a meadow um, below us, and then just as we were about to give up, um, I saw the head of a, a kind of an ox, kind of a wild ox, um, emerge from the the, the, uh, the forest into this open area, and there he was followed by four males, and then followed again by maybe 20 females that were flanked on either side by other males and then males bringing up the back. And I guess there were some young ones. So that was very dramatic. Um, and we saw elephants. I don't think we saw much else, but it was, that was amazing. So then we, we took a a bus over to, um, Madras, you know, Kerala's is on the west coast and it gets all the rain and it's absolutely green. And then you go over the mountains into Madras State and it's dry. And I went to this temple. Madras town is
0: Chennai, Mad- right?
2: Chennai, yeah, uh, uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so uh, went to a temple town and hung out there for a while. And then went. What's to the name Mary's. of the
0: temple town?
2: Madurai. Uh
0: huh.
2: M A M A D U R A I. They're famous for these towers on the on the temple called Gopuram. And and the, the towers are covered with uh, you know sculptors of of you know gods and beings and so on, and all painted in bright, beautiful colors.
1: Mm.
2: And that was that was that was very that was exceptional being there, you know. And you went into the temple and they had this long corridor. I remember you started at the corridor, and you know, you go in from the outside, and already the sound has changed. And when you walk halfway down this corridor that feels like it's carved out of stone, the, the sound uh, there's a kind of reverberation in there like nothing I've ever heard. It was really spectacular.
0: Mm. You, I, and then I went, did to, you wait a minute? Uh, did you go to uh, Tiru Anomaly?
2: No, I didn't.
0: Mm. All right.
2: But then then I went to the Aurobindo Ashram.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: So w- when I got to the Aurobindo Ashram, I was actually, uh, you had to apply to be admitted. And I, I had a fever and I had to stay in a hotel room for a couple of days and recover from my fever. And then they they uh, accepted me and I came in. And of course, it was very beautiful inside. They had this memorial like a huge slab of marble that was covered with fresh flowers every day. It was very fragrant and beautiful and Mm. everything was clean. It was like an oasis from India because India is a difficult place. If you've been there, Uh it's not necessarily easy, easy to be in India. And um, so I went into this, the library there and um, I was talking with a librarian. I remember he told me that he'd been diagnosed with cancer like 11 years ago and given a few months to live. And so he decided to come to India and he'd been there ever since. And he, he asked me about me and I said, well, I, you know, I'd been studying music. Um, I had studied in Bombay, but you know, it was difficult for me to stay there. And um, he got this far away look in his eyes and, and, he, and he, he, he said, you know, come with me. And he sat me down at a table with a, sack tape recorder and some headphones and he said, listen to this. So he put on a raga by Ali Akbar Khan. And I was overcome with some kind of extremely powerful experience. Um, You know, they say that uh, at the time, the mother was still alive, if you know about Aurobindo Ashram. There was Aurobindo and his consort, the mother, who was a French woman who who became uh, like a, a co-guru, if you will. She mm-hmm. was still alive at the time. And there were stories about people who get off the train at Pondicherry having no idea that there was even an ashram there and... And, and you know, and 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 feel the energy immediately. When she showed up, the story goes she saw this pillar of light. She just went as a French citizen to the colony, you know, to 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 be there, and she saw this pillar of light, and she followed uh, it to Sri Aurobindo, and right. that's how
0: she found him. And the colony and it, was Pondicherry.
2: Pondicherry, correct? Right. Yeah. So, so I had this tremendously powerful experience, and I, I felt you know, almost enlightened for, you
1: know,
2: it kind of lasted for a couple of weeks. And then I, um, I had a private audition with her or audition or, or Darshan or whatever, Darshan, I think is the right word. And I just remember her eyes were these sparkling blue kaleidoscopic eyes. And um, she didn't say anything, but I, I certainly felt something. Mm. So then I came back and that, had such a profound effect on me that experience that I, I felt the need to uh, you know, find some spiritual practice, some meditation practice. And that's when I started, when I went back, when I started sitting with those folks in yellow Springs, Ohio. So, um, Mm. and I continue, I I did go back to study uh, with Nikhil Banerjee, I think in it was in 69, the summer of 69. And then in the summer of 70 is when I came to Zen Center. Um,
0: and Hey, remind point, me who you were sitting with in Yellow Springs. I forgot.
2: Yeah, there, it was um, um, an, an older couple. I mean, I was, you know, I was, I guess I was in, I was 20 or something at the time by then. Um and um they lived in a geodesic dome in the woods uh, um i think it was called Glen ellen in the woods and they and they sat every wednesday night they were students of yasutani roshi
1: mm.
2: so right. i came to zen center and i had my sitar and i played practiced my sitar at zen center and um, then um,
1: <clears throat> um
2: baker roshi sent me to be with um nancy wilson ross young so i spent the summer with her at um in the adirondacks and um but that that was
0: was what year
2: gosh uh maybe 72 i don't remember exactly to be honest Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um but um uh, uh, Baker found out that, that Nikhil Banerjee was also teaching. And he asked me, did I want to, uh, and you know, not go, I think, I think he asked me if I wanted to return and study. And I said, no, it was, it was fine. I, I spent the summer there. So, um, but then fast forward, you know, to the time when it came time that I left Zen center, I definitely wanted to continue pursuing music. Um, but, you know, I had to earn a living, so I, I worked as a carpenter. And I, I studied guitar for a while. Um, I don't think that I took any sitar classes or anything then. Um,
0: what type of guitar did you study? Um, you know, I... I studied a little
2: bit of jazz guitar and I had a wonderful, Martin D 18 for a while, had a beautiful sound and I did a lot of improvising and I did a lot of kind of pseudo Indian Raga type things on it. And just things that I made up, you know? Mm Um, and then at a certain point, um, I had always felt that I was lacking in, in my, my rhythmic understanding. So I started studying with, uh, Zakir Hussein. Um, and I studied. What were you studying? Oh, so Zakir Hussein is a tabla player. Mm-hmm. He's probably the, the most famous tabla player, um, alive. You know, he played, he plays with Shakti, you know, with John McLaughlin. Um, and he's played, he's, played with Chris Potter, the, the sax player. Uh, he played with Bela Fleck. I mean, he's played with everybody. You know, He's, he's very versatile and an amazing, amazing percussionist and extremely generous teacher. So I, I played tablas for I don't know, 30 years or something. And then um, I just had this I, I had a desire to play melody again. It was like, oh, I, I just need to play some notes. And, and so, um, I had played the five string banjo. I I, I should go back, you know, when, when I was, when I was a kid, I studied the trumpet. That was my first love. And then the next one was, was the five string banjo. And then, Uh then came the sitar. So, um, I decided I wanted to study banjo again and I started working on it and practicing really hard and, um, uh, trying to learn some jazzy things like Bela Fleck did and, and, but at a certain point, um, one day I was practicing and my hand hurt. And I thought, oh, I better take a break. What age? Oh, about 65, 66, something like like that. Maybe 66. Um, I had been playing for six and, years. And, and oh, how old are you now? So, 75.
0: Yeah, all right. So nine years so, ago.
2: Yeah. So, so I thought, okay, I'll take a few days break. And, um, I did and came back and it still hurt. So I said, well, I better take a couple of weeks and same thing. I came back after a couple of weeks and I said, well, I better give it a month or so. And <laughs> each time I came back, you know, my hands hurt too much. Um, and so I just had to stop, um, You know, I've got I've got a triple whammy. I've got trigger finger and I've got arthritis and some carpal tunnel. I mean, I've got it all. So
0: what what did you say? One finger, trigger finger?
2: Yeah. Have you heard of that trigger finger? No. So that's that's a condition where uh, it's pretty common. The fingers have, you know, tendons that that run all the way, you know, from I guess from the. Somewhere in the palm, or, or or even further up, all the way up through the finger, and and they go through uh, these uh, rings that keep them in place. called They call them pulleys. And with age, the the, the tendons actually accumulate some material. They get thicker, and um, it happens to everyone. But but some people it gets thick enough that the tendon has a hard time going through the pulley and it gets caught so you know you may say make a fist and then you try to open it and the finger might snap back you might feel the snapping and it can be painful mm. and um and i know that um uh um david silva had debut trends, which is another uh thing that happens to your finger where it kind of i think it kind of gets stuck in a position so um i had an operation and you know my hands work well enough but not well enough to play an instrument so uh, i thought well what can i do now (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. a lifetime of being a music student uh an instrumentalist and i thought well what's left is i can learn to sing only i'm not gifted with a nice voice and um so, but I, I asked a friend if he knew of a, a, a good classical Indian teacher, and he did know of one who lives over in the East Bay. Um, and I started taking some lessons with her. Her name is Jayanti Saha Sarabude. And her mother-in-law was a, a very famous and wonderful uh, singer from the Gwalior uh, Garana. Not that that means a whole lot. You know, there's different schools, different... They have. Each one has more or less of a distinctive style. Um, <clears throat> so I started taking lessons with her, and since my wife is a vocalist, she she help, has helped me, you know, with technique. Some I don't take enough advantage of what she has to offer. Really, I should work with her more. She's a great teacher. Um, but I've been working on it now for a number of years, and I have to say, uh, I'm starting to
0: sing in tune. <laughs> Uh, now what what type of music are you singing
2: So um you know I do I I do from time to time practice some popular songs but mostly I'm working on on classical north indian uh vocal music
0: which North Indian requ- Yeah mhm mhm mm-hmm. mm.
2: So that that requires that I um you know, it requires a whole lot of skills that are extremely refined. I mean, for one thing, you have to be very precisely in tune. If you're not in tune, it, it loses the raga is you know can be destroyed if you if you're out of tune enough. Of course, that's true of any music, but it's particularly um, it's a particular requirement. You just have to be in tune. Then the other thing you have to be able to do is to slide smoothly between notes and intervals. So um, that means a continuous tone from the center of one pitch to the center of the other pitch and maybe back down again. And you make these very kind of circular movements uh, with, with the notes that are all connected in a way.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: the technique is very, very difficult. And since you know, since I'm not like I say, not naturally gifted. As a singer, I've had to approach this kind of mechanically and figure out well, what the heck is this mechanism all about and what makes it work? And it's It's been an uphill uh, battle, but um, there is progress.
0: Well, could, can you uh, give me an example?
2: An example? Well, <clears throat> I'm not prepared to sing right now, but I could direct you to some you know, some wonderful, um, uh, you know, wonderful singers that you could listen to and, and get a sense of what that music is about. Get a really okay. uh, authentic sense of that. I'll send you some links
0: to, yeah. to different people. Chicken. Um, You're a chicken. I just wanted to I'm hear you go from one note <laughs> to another.
2: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Oh, gosh. Um <clears throat> Hang on a second. (laughs) You're putting me on the spot. I have to go grab something. I'll be right back.
1: All right.
2: Uh, Can you hear me okay? Yeah. So, um, you know, it it takes me about an hour to warm up. Oh, wow. I, I I have sung today, but I'm not <clears throat> not in any shape right now. <clears throat> Let's see if I can even pull this off. Um, hmm. uh, uh, <clears throat> Just give me a second. I got to warm up a little. All right. <laughs> blah, <laughs> position we've been working on
0: that's great that's great you did a good job I, I really appreciate it um, and I really am impressed at your uh, fine tuning uh, of what you do with music you know I've been involved with music all my life and I'm the opposite uh, and and you're really um uh you know, like I say, fine tuning is, is what I think of and, uh, perfectionism. And you do it in your, your audio work too. You know, I was looking at your website, the Lotus Group USA, uh, and, uh, you know, read reviews of your equipment and saw that, uh, article on what the beatnik audio file or something, uh, about and and I I put a link to it on the podcast. Uh, uh, and and you're uh you're really into very high end, not only uh listening but very very the highest in listening, uh, uh, but in uh, high end, uh, playing of the sitar. Uh, in, no matter how little guitar you you did. I remember you as being a very good guitar player who did mm. unusual type of guitar, uh, which I was interested mm. in. And I thought it was really neat. And, and oh. you're singing. You're doing the same thing. You're, uh, you're dissatisfied in the lower realms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, um, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, um, I mean, music is a, is a form of yoga, you know, and, and I think, you know, the Indians certainly view it that way. I mean, my singing is nowhere near good enough, nor will it ever be to be a professional Indian singer that, I, you know, uh, I have very little hope of that, of anything like that happening, especially at this age. Maybe if I'd started, you know, when I was 20 or or five.
0: Yeah, you're doing <laughs> it as a practice.
2: It Yeah. And and it you know even to just be able to get closer to the pitch to get closer to the feel of the raga um you know that's that's a, that's a lot of uh, satisfaction and i i it, it, i don't know how to be any other way anyhow <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. you know
2: other than mm-hmm. always working on it it just seems to be that i have to do that i'm you know either driven or whatever but um but if I make a little progress, I'm very happy. I'm happy with a little progress.
0: Mm-hmm. You don't have absolute pitch, do you? Oh, no.
2: No, not yeah. at all.
0: I think but, of that as a
2: curse. Yeah, probably. In in some ways, yeah, it it might be. Um, I'm, you know, I'm just, you heard the Tanpur. I played the um, electronic Tanpur, the drone. Uh-huh. And, you know, that's, you know, that's the absolute reference. Yeah. And so, um, and also, you probably, you may or may not. Do you know about just intonation? Do you
0: know what that is? Say it again. Just,
2: just intonation, as opposed to tempered intonation. Right.
0: Bach, it's tempered, and, and and no, I'd like to hear.
2: Okay. So, um, in order, um, this was something that was figured out. You know, I guess around Bach's time um, that in order to be able to transpose from any key to any other key and have all the intervals, all the relationships between all the intervals be the same, you had to actually detune the instrument, um, you know, the keyboard, um, slightly as a compromise so that those intervals would all be the same. And what detuning means is that you know, the the all of the notes that we have in a chromatic scale, in some sense, can be de- derived from the physics of a string. So, you know, when you play a harmonic at the twelfth fret of your guitar, that's an octave. If you play it at the, uh, I think at the seventh fret, it, what is it, a fifth? And at the fifth fret, it's another whatever those are. Well, you can you can a- extrapolate finer and finer um, uh, overtones. Which are actual divisions of the string. So when you, when you put your finger on, on the node of the the 12th string, the, the string is actually divided in half. So if you look at, if you look at the string. What's a
0: node?
2: uh, Well, it's just that point. Okay. Yeah. So the octave is the string divided in half. And the fifth, I'm not sure. I think it might be the string divided in, in, um, in thirds and and the string divided in fourths and and fifths and sixths and those are actual physical like sine wave like divisions you can actually see them in the way that a string uh, vibrates you know you can Mm -hmm. you can you can film it or whatever and so those are perfect intervals that are Something that exists in the in the physics of a string that we can derive all the notes from. So Indian music is based on that intonation. So all those intervals are perfect intervals, but they don't transpose in the way that we do. They don't. You know, you can't you can't go from uh, you, you can't transpose a raga from uh, starting from another note. In other words, if that makes sense. Because that's what, you know, transposing is, you know, you play a major scale from C, you play a major scale from D, you play a major scale from F sharp. They're all the same. um, uh, They have all the same intervallic or proportional relationships. Mm. So Indian music is based on this just intonation. And that's why the drone is there. That gives the absolute reference. And there's something, um, you know, uh, an accomplished singer can can rest on 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 any of those notes, um, without, without losing the pitch, without wavering Of course, we have that in, in Western music, but there's many different degrees of of vibrato that people employ, you know, some, which goes way out of the range of the note and some, which stay very close to the note. Um, but Indian music, your, your, your effort is to try and have it be as smooth and even as possible. So there's all these very, you know, impossible to achieve requirements. (laughs)
0: <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. Now, is there uh, what Western music uh, is uh, just tuning?
2: Well, I mean, there are Western there are Western musicians who've made compositions in just intonation, and I I personally think that when you hear. Like if you hear a bluegrass group where 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 they're singing really really perfectly in tune, I think they may be segueing over to uh, just intonation in some kind of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's just something that that's very penetrating about being having that kind of intonation,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: you know, th- this the, this Indian music is is very scientific. You know, they they divided the octave into 66 increments that are discernible by the human ear um, mm-hmm. now they use all they use very similar they have the chromatic increments that we have but they also have microtones and microtones can be like a little bit of a wavering sometimes that's intentional um, and they also have figured out that if you take if you take a scale that has, seven notes ascending and seven notes descending. And there is a first and a fifth, those being fixed. Um, But you have all the variations of all the other notes. In other words, okay, all of the scales that have a flatted second in them, uh, all of the scales that have an augmented fourth in them and so on, they figured out there's 72 of those. And you could you could extrapolate it for yourself. You know, there's 70, they call them melakarta ragas. So those are the basic ragas that have seven notes ascending and the same seven notes descending. And then there are ragas that skip a note, like the one that I just uh, attempted to sing uh, skips the third. It goes from the second to the fourth. And then again, it goes from the fifth to the flatted third. uh, I'm sorry, fifth to the flatted seventh or the fifth to the major seventh, depending on on the how you're traveling through the raga. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then there are ragas that have built in zigzags, you have to go in order to go down a certain way, you have to go up first, you know, so there's all these different kind of very um, uh, configurations that are that are that are given that define a raga you can have a raga that has two different ragas that have exactly the same scale but one of them will emphasize the third and the other will emphasize the sixth and they'll have different approaches and they'll have a different feel they might be associated with a different season or a different time of day so they're very scientific about all that kind of thing
0: Mm. wow
1: impressive yeah
2: and and I'd like to talk about, since you brought it up, I'd like to talk a little bit about hi-fi because that's, yeah that's something that, um, uh, it, it's, that's something that happened to me also when I was in my twenties living in Berkeley, I wandered into a store and they had this very esoteric, these very esoteric speakers and amplifiers at the time. And, um, boy that impressed the heck out of me and then uh one of my friends one of my fellow students of Indian music was a guy named Mark Levinson you may have heard of him uh he was at one time married to Kim Cattrall the actress um and he had a
1: <clears throat>
2: he started he was one of the original high-end guys um you know after the 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 what of the Dynakits and Dynacos, you know uh um, of the of the what fifties and sixties maybe he he came out with a preamp that was like twelve hundred dollars unheard of that much money for a preamp now <laughs> you can spend a hundred thousand dollars for a preamp um, <laughs> and I know it's crazy um, so I kind of wait
0: wait a minute what because, is what's the difference between a preamp and an amp. So, um, amplifier, a preamplifier, and an amplifier.
2: So, in in one sense, the preamplifier is the heart of the system. It's the control center. So, you, you know, typically they'll have uh, multiple inputs. So, you could input input a CD player, a, a tape player, and a turntable, let's say. Mm-hmm. And it has a volume control, but it doesn't usually have enough power to drive a loudspeaker. So you have to take the output signal of the preamplifier and then route it to an amplifier, which does provide enough power to drive the speakers.
0: Well, we used to call – what about what we we called receivers?
2: So a receiver is basically an all-in-one device that had a tuner – you know, a radio receiver and a an amplifier and a preamplifier. It had all the controls, but it, you could just attach the speakers to the back of it because it had a built-in amplifier. So that that's what a receiver is.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, in in high-end audio, people are really into separates. There are some high-end integrated amplifiers that have a preamp and amp built in, and sometimes even a even a, a, a digital to analog decoder. Um, but very, very high-end stuff, you have separates. So, you know, an extreme case of separates would be not only do you have a separate amplifier, but you have a separate amplifier for each channel. And then the next more extreme set would be <laughs> to have a separate power supply for um, uh, for each channel, for each amplifier. And um, I had a customer who um, had a pair of... Um, amplifiers from Japan from a company called Wavak that had three chassis. It had it had a power filter and a power supply and then the 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 audio circuitry in three separate boxes and that was like a three hundred fifty thousand dollar tube amplifier. Um so Whoa. you know this oh. <laughs> yeah. oh, wow. it's another universe. Wow. But, but here's 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 the here's the catch though you can spend a lot of money and in my estimation, not get great sound.
1: Um,
2: There, there has to be the right kind of synergy and and the right things happening to allow the best of the sound to come through. Um, You know, there's many different approaches. I have my own approach. You know, I designed cables and, 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 and uh, power line accessories and some isolation devices and things like that. And, Uh, You know, you get to a certain level of resolution in in a system, smaller and smaller improvements become more and more apparent. I mean, it's kind of crazy. I had this thing happen to me um, in the last month. I went to order some capacitors that I use in a device that I built, and um, that value is no longer available from that manufacturer. So, you know, at first I was, you know, oh, what am I going to do? But it turned into an opportunity. I actually got to, uh, to test, um, other brands and, and found things that sounded better. And basically what I was listening to was, uh, this ground plane device that I had, uh, created. It's a, it's basically a plate of pure silver with uh, a number of layers of insulating, uh, and noise absorbing materials around it. And then I tune it with a capacitor to allow the high frequencies to to kind of blossom.
0: What's a capacitor? And, okay, a
2: capacitor is a device that stores and releases energy. This is this is you know my understanding. I'm not an engineer, but I you know I have folklore knowledge about audio. You might say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're used in, in, in circuits. Um, they they can be used to um, uh, you know to to isolate um, and and like I say to, to store and release energy. Um, and you can couple different stages of an amplifier using uh, a capacitor. So you know the output of a of a of a tube could be coupled to its output the, the output that, that would then go to the speaker cable with a capacitor. That's one way to do it.
0: You say it stores energy. Does that mean it has the function of a battery?
2: No, it's not a battery. I mean, it's it's basically. Um, so, a typical film capacitor is basically you have um, you have uh, um, windings of. Uh, let's say copper foil that are interleaved with uh a layer of paper or polypropylene or something like that or mica uh although that's not a film capacitor a mica capacitor but the you know you have layers that separate uh, the the layers of metal that that uh, insulate them and they can be they're wound you know so these two things are wound together uh, on a bobbin uh to a certain um size and then of certain value they can they can uh handle so much current you know and they can um and they have a a certain value so there's some that are huge and there's some that are small but i'm not really the guy to give an education about capacitors i mean it's you know it's deeper than what i'm saying Mm. um so i had to i created this device which basically is uh you know in its simple, simplest form it's a hunk of silver that that's attached to a wire um, that um, attaches to the ground post on my pre amplifier so what's amazing to me is that first of all just hooking that up to my pre amplifier changes the sound of my system and listening to different brands of capacitors, different levels of quality. I can hear that. I can hear that when I drop the needle, I'm standing behind the speaker. I can hear that before I go and stand in front of the speaker. So all this is a very roundabout way of saying that it's possible to have an effect on a, a, a system if if everything is really well put together to extract more and more and more and more sound and information out of what's in the grooves or what's in the CD pits or what's in the file. You can, you can hear more of the shimmer on the cymbal. You can hear more of the solidity when it's struck in the center. You can hear more of the, uh, you know, how the sound travels across the membrane of a drum. Uh, you can hear uh, the, the, the minute adjustments in, in the, in the embouchure of the trumpet player and his lips. You know, all of these things, you can hear the exact position uh, of the instrument in relation to the microphone um, and and how and how that particular sound is in the hall. So in, in the very best sense, uh, in in really great system, sound becomes three dimensional. Yeah. Sound transcends the speaker's. And, and fills the room in a way that gives you this illusion of being at the event.
0: Well, what about it's the uh, like speaker setup, uh, stereo, quadraphonic, or whatever?
2: So, I mean, um, it's amazing how much information is in a stereo recording. You know, there are these, uh, I guess the latest uh, thing is like Dolby Atmos, So Dolby Atmos uh, systems have speakers that also have speaker drivers that are kind of aimed up at an angle towards the ceiling um, to create, I guess, some, you know, reverberant or ambient um, information or to capture that in some kind of way. Uh, But um, for purists, uh, two channels is enough.
0: That is good to hear. (laughs)
2: Yeah. So you know what happens for me is I, I, I'll think that this this reference system of mine, which is one of the best systems I've heard. Not that I've heard everything, but it's it's really got something special going on. What's amazing to me is it will get to a certain plateau, and then I'll figure out that something else that I can do to squeeze just another little bit out of it, and it's catapulted to another level. You know that I couldn't have predicted that I that I wouldn't have known that it would it would become mm. or it would go to you know mm. how are your ears so. <laughs> well you know in objective sense i haven't had that my my hearing measured i'm sure that i have a dropout um uh, you know i'm you know, i'm 75 so um and if i listen really loud like i did today i'll have a little bit of uh, a little I don't know like a little very faint hiss that I can hear, you know, I know that I'm probably not being as kind to my ears as I should, yeah um but um but what I hear you know it's just it's just uh, amazing and it's it's it very it it's kind of viscerally satisfying mm. you know um mm. so Wow. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. It's a whole other thing. But, you know, um, I was I was pretty happy uh, as a Zen student listening to The Creek.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you remember Lou Harrison? Of course, yeah. Uh, well, I got to know him. Uh, and, uh, you know, he'd come to Tassar as a guest. And uh, he said... Uh, you know I apologized to him that we didn't uh uh allowed uh we didn't have music um actually people could have an instrument and take it down creek or up Creek, but we didn't mm-hmm. have it there mm-hmm. and he said you have all the music you need here you know you have the creek <laughs> you have the bells you have the wooden sound uh, a lot of space between them and uh no. yeah anyway I never forgot that.
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: Now you. No. When did you meet your wife? How long have you all been together?
2: Thirty years.
0: And uh, you tell me about uh, you. You said she's a jazz singer.
2: Yeah.
0: Hmm. Cool. Uh, Tell me about it.
2: So um, her father was a a principal violinist in the San Francisco Symphony. Ah. Um, So um, he started under Montu, who wanted him to be a a solo artist. He wanted him to have a solo career, but uh, his name was Irvin Mountner. But he didn't want to travel and leave his family. So he, he stayed with the symphony. So she grew up, you know, with uh, people coming to dinner like Seiji Ozawa and, um, um, you know, other great musicians and um, her father having string quartet uh, rehearsals in the house and, you know, that sort of thing. So Mm -hmm. she played piano and she sang um, motets uh, in school and her father wanted her to be a classical singer, uh, and have a career, um, maybe in the opera or the symphony, um, which would have been a smart move <laughs> in retrospect. <laughs> but, uh, you know, having said that, you know, one day she heard jazz on the radio and for her, it was kind of all over, you know, she just had to, had to, had to learn that. And she, um, uh, she studied from, uh, with, um, I'm trying to. Why am I blanking right now? I'll think of it. Um, the local Mill Valley singers, really great singer. I um, can't think of her name. Uh, anyway, um, and she also learned from Bobby McFerrin and from Mark Murphy, who Mark Murphy was a great, great jazz singer. Um, and so she played around the Bay Area quite a lot. Um, she especially loves Brazilian uh, jazz, but you know, she's played many, many different genres. You know, she can sing R and B, she can sing pop, you know, um, she can sing fusion jazz. She can sing straight ahead jazz. She can, she doesn't do it, but she can sing classical music. um, And she's also a vocal coach. She's a very, uh, very, very good teacher. I mean, she's, her, her students love her, and she's got a couple of kids that are coming along that look pretty promising. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: And um, I think I told you she toured with Dan Hicks for 10 years. He uh, Oh, right. I, I knew somebody. Yeah. You know, I was trying to remember recently. Who told me that? Well, that's very impressive. Um, I love Dan Hicks. Mm. Yeah, Dan was amazing.
2: You know, I got, I got to spend time with him, and I – I, I don't know how many of those concerts I heard <clears throat> he went after her um uh, some years before she actually joined he he tried to ent- she said she'd heard he was a bad boy and she didn't want to you know, uh-huh. and she didn't want to go touring but um but this friend of hers was singing with him and the other singer dropped out and she said, look, why don't you just come over and, you know, come over to his house, sing a, a couple of songs, you know, and, and you don't have to commit to anything. So she, you know, she went over and she sang one song and he said, he just looked at her and he said, well, you want to be in the band? And she said, oh, OK.
0: <laughs> oh, that's great. And, that's great. And that, that was that.
2: And, um you know he he was a bad boy but you know he was much reformed bad boy by the time she she got in the band you know he he wrote a um a, a memoir before he died you know and he talks about his i think 12 years of of you know being an alcoholic uh he he burned a lot of bridges you know he could have been a lot more famous than he was and he certainly has um uh, a catalog of songs which his wife is which i think they sold before he died you know i'm sure that they they got quite a lot of money for it
0: oh but, yeah you know, i mean
2: he wrote he wrote so many great songs you know probably the most famous is i scare myself
0: uh, or, how right, I, right
2: and how can i miss you when you won't go away uh-huh um, uh-huh uh, so <laughs> many and you know and he was he was a student of americana you know I mean, he loved um, he loved jazz, and he he would play in a separate little band um, that he called Bayside Jazz, and he would play over at the sweet the old Sweetwater. He would do little jazz, jazz gigs there, um, mm. and you know he sang uh, he sang Tom Wills, uh, he sang. I mean, you name it, if it was Americana or if he liked it, it was in the repertoire. And he would, he would put on different themed shows, like he put on a food themed show or he put on a, um, uh, oh God, who was the the famous stride pianist? Um, oh, God. Blanking. Uh, this is what happens when you're my age, right? Aphasia. Um,
0: it's called aphasia. Uh, Yeah, um, who's
2: the famous...
0: Yes, uh, who was the great stride pianist? I checked it out here. Uh, The man, James P. Johnson, the man generally credited as the father of stride piano, born in New Jersey in 1894, grew up in New York City, and like many other pianists of his time, he was heavily influenced by the piano rags of Scott Joplin.
2: Anyway, they they put on all these different uh, shows with different themes. One was called the College of Musical Knowledge. He was always coming up with stuff, and he was an artist. He painted he painted backdrops that they used. He you know had a, a special backdrop for a Christmas show. They did all these. Mm. Christmas tunes,
1: you know, it was it was
2: fun. It was always fun. He would tell the same jokes over and over again, but in different ways. I always laughed. He always got me. He was funny. He
1: oh. was very funny. Uh. Yeah,
2: uh. that was great. That was a great experience.
0: Uh. wow. And hmm. Uh, just uh, one second. I'm up here. uh. Hmm. Well Joe, you did it. Uh <laughs> you you talked enough about music for it to be a separate podcast. We're we're over an hour. Ha <laughs> ha. Uh-huh. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's great. Um hmm, You know what we're going you know who, who uh Tom uh Moore is? Thomas Moore wrote Care of the Soul and uh soulmates, and many uh, books like that. Well, if you know or not, his... I'm
2: not, I'm not sure if I am, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, um, he, he told me his daughter is singing tonight here in uh, oh. Bali. So we're uh, going over to a booth and we're going to go to a 7 to 9 p.m. concert. His daughter is... Uh, Ajit, A-J-E-E-T, uh, and she's really big in Europe. It's sort of, uh, New Age music, uh, uh-huh. uh, and, uh, I, I, you know, I've, I've listened to it. It's very pleasant, uh, it's haunting and all that. It's what I, what I told Katrina when I said, I said, yeah, it's good. It's, it's not irritating because, um, there's so much <laughs> New Age music and stuff that's, that's, you know, it just irritates me. But she really puts a lot into it. Uh, and she does oh, a lot of touring. Good. That's good. And it's good to be cop yeah. because it's way more expensive than, uh, uh, most things here. Uh, yeah. And, uh, anyway, so we're going to that. Uh, that's yes. neat. Oh, I, I wanted to say, and I grew up in a home where I could wake up to a string quartet play, actually a quintet. My mother would be on the piano. With, oh, uh, wow, nice. four, yeah, uh, that was wonderful. I loved it. And she, yeah, you know, I'd go with her to pick up opera singers at the airport and, uh-huh. uh, 50 years on the opera board in Fort Worth. <laughs> wow,
2: nice. Yeah,
0: that's wonderful. That was yeah. neat. Uh, so I appreciate that. Uh, that what you said about your wife. Uh, well that's great. That's great. Uh you are uh, an eternal student and um you're just flying higher and higher. Uh, and uh I'm
2: just trying to keep my head above water. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well that business of yours looks very impressive. Uh the next time I'm in Nevada I'll be sure to go see uh Oh please. Yeah, please. Lotus Group yeah. USA uh, USA. Um Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want you to, I'm going to send you a link to a, a song of mine that we did here. Please. We've done a bunch of yeah. them. And I want you to listen to it on, on, what, what, Where are your prize speakers that, that, that whole article was on those speakers?
2: The Granadas.
0: Yeah. The, the, the Beatnik, the Beatnik audio file.
2: Yeah. No, that's uh, the, the Lotus
0: Group Granada loudspeaker. Yeah. Uh huh. All right. All right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I want you to uh, give me a, a review uh, of uh, a song on those loudspeakers, and we do all sorts so of different sounding stuff. But I thought that might be interesting.
2: Yeah, I'd like to hear it. I, I'd have to burn it to a CD because I'm I'm kind of in the in the dark ages. I don't do any streaming or um, you know. A file serving. I just play CDs for digital and LPs for analog.
0: Wow! <laughs> you can't in your high-end audio file store. <laughs> you can't. You can't play something off a off a computer.
2: Oh, uh, not yet. I mean, ultimately, I guess I will, but I haven't. I I did actually build a little server. I I could probably, yeah, I probably could. Can I? I have to think of uh, if I can make that particular piece work. I might be able to make that work. Wow, but, um, that is shocking. Yeah, I'm just
0: <laughs> that. You know, this reminds me of. Do you remember Mike Phillips? Uh he's still
1: I think so, yeah. He's
0: still going. Oh, he'd certainly been his. It, it Maybe late eighties.
1: Uh, mm.
0: and I wasn't that long ago. I, I talked to him. I did a podcast with him. His, his, he uh, created MasterCard as vice president of uh, Wells Fargo.
2: Oh my goodness.
0: The, the mm. first interbank card. He became vice president of Bank of America. And wow. then he, he got out of that level. Founded the Briar Patch Network of Small Businesses and, uh, mm-hmm. has been a, you know, a financial consultant, all sorts of stuff. A really, uh, you know, uh, expert witness for trials. He does that. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, I've met so many great people through him and great things. He was wonderful advisor to Zen Center and everything. Anyway, so I run into him one day, a long time ago, decades ago. And he said, hey, look at my new, my new, uh, calculator. And it was like calculators were sort of new, you know? Uh, uh-huh. but, but, or, well, I don't know how new they were. Uh, it was handheld. It was extremely calculated. He looked, he said, look, I can, uh, I can show you, you know, interest compounded, blah, blah, blah. And I can do the square root so right. and I can, you know, all these complicated things. And I said to him, uh, uh, what's, uh, 72 times, um uh, 8,450? And he couldn't figure out how to do it. <laughs> he couldn't do simple <laughs> arithmetic. I mean, I'm sure <laughs> later he could. He said, well, look, yeah. well, let's it was sort of like new math, you know, where you can't yeah, just yeah, use regular yeah. numbers. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, you're saying that you'd have to burn a CD uh yeah well then uh you'll just have uh, i but you should probably just burn the whole album. It's only thirty minutes or something
2: yeah yeah, sure,
0: all right well um it keeps getting more interesting um i know uh well, we've gotta stop meeting like this. that was all really interesting, I really enjoyed it. And yeah, me too, and I'm glad we did this one, and I'll go on and put up today's with uh you know I'll put anything that says uh this is part one next week uh we'll be uh focusing on music
2: nice well uh, send- send me a link too I'll, I'll be
0: curious. you'll get it you'll get it all right, okay, all right, take David, care, thank you so much thank take you take that care. was fun thanks come visit, Bye-bye. come visit we have a oh, guest room
2: lovely, lovely, thank you, yeah,
0: all right
1: all bye right. bye bye bye,
0: bye so thanks a lot, Joe, for uh podcast number two, very interesting stuff about your music uh and pardon me for throwing in something on my own. I wanted to hear uh what you know like I said what he thought about uh the, one particular song sounding on his speakers. Of course, I'd like him to hear all of them. Uh, <laughs> but getting somebody to listen to one's doing pretty good. Um, and I'll tell you the one. It's called Offerings. And it has an Indonesian name, too, because it's half an in Indonesian. But it's Simbahan, but it's Simbahan. And uh, th- th- their their plurals are doubled. Uh, so for Simbahan, it's Offerings. And it compares the offerings, the constant offerings they make here to the good spirits and the gods and everything uh, constantly, every day, multiple times, uh, all over. Uh, and, uh, and the offerings that we make to evil spirits, which uh, is trash and plastic and pollution and, you know, that sort of thing. So it compares the two. And unfortunately, our our self-destructive offerings are uh, outweighing the beneficial ones in terms of our survival, is my feeling. So anyway, this song sort of expresses that. And um, if you listen to it, you'll, you, you might hear in the ominous uh, sort of part of it uh, I wanted to hear what he thought that sounded like on those really good speakers. So um, uh, the name of the album is Bad Intentions. Um, and that's oh, The name of the album actually is Bali Yuga, Bad Intentions, because all the albums we did here start with the name Bali Yuga, which is the name of our band, which is a studio band. Uh And um, if you go to baliyuga.com, that just opens up on my music site, Diffuser Music. And right there, you can see uh, uh, a link to Bali Yuga, the Bali Yuga section of it. But you can also see a link to all DC artist pages. Uh, so if you click that, you can choose uh, whether to go to YouTube or Spotify or Apple Music or Deezer or Amazon. Uh, and then there, just look for the Ballyyuga album and click on Offerings. Uh, so um, thanks for joining us. It was great talking with uh, Joe. It was great having you here. And uh, I'll see you again next week uh, with another guest. Um, You might notice that this is is, is Joe's, uh, that today's is uh, guest number 82. Actually, there have been about, I don't know, 50 or more other guests, but I, I called the first 50 or whatever chats. There were phone chats, and at some point, I got tired of calling them phone chats, and I started a new folder with guests. So I was thinking, well, maybe I should just start another folder (laughs) and start renumbering it from the total number we've had. But we've also had um, Life in Bali over 50 guests, So I guess it's uh, like 80, 50, 130. Um, um, It's going to hit 200 at some point. I'd like to go back to doing uh, Life in Bali. I'm just, there's too much happening. I'm trying to get this book finished and I can hardly get to it. There's just so much comes this way uh, from the Cuke archive stuff. But anyway, enough of all that. Thanks for joining us. And um, until we meet again, I'm D.C., Poovah of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives, coming to you from Sleepy Sanur, with Dogit Bandita and dear lovely Katrinka. And we're wishing you and yours and all of us a grand awakening.
1: Boom. Mm-hmm.